Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. Hellraiser, or what a podcast will do for good discourse. <laughs> hello, 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 everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Horror Vanguard. I am John, otherwise known as the Liquid Guy, joined as always by my friend, my comrade, my co ghost, and co conspirator in all things <laughs> in all things leftist and spooky uh ash ash how are you doing um uh yeah there might be some interruptions in today's recording my my illicit lover is bringing dead bodies to help me reassemble my flesh from the hell dimension uh, uh so there could be some there could be some I'll, I'll try and edit it all out in post but maybe some of yeah, that sneaks yeah. in i mean i i know that you have very mixed feelings about the hell dimension so i'm i'm glad that that's getting sorted out you know, you know, what's funny is that like, you know, it, it takes me one day to get enough like human corpse sacrifices to, to reassemble my flesh from from a dimension of endless torture. But it's taken over a month for uh, for the uh, maintenance crew in hell to fix the leak in my bathroom. I mean, come on, guys. Seriously. Ser- <laughs> priorities. I mean, really. You know, but I'm I'm really glad that you've got somebody who is bringing home uh, people they picked up in bars that they will then help you murder with a hammer so you can feed off their uh, blood and energy to, to reconstitute your physical form. Um, I'm really I'm really happy for you because I know being <laughs> in the hell dimension has been it's been a stre- it's been a stressful couple of weeks. You've been introduced to uh, pleasures beyond human experience and you've had a bathroom that keeps flooding. This is that's a lot for anybody to deal with. Seriously, I mean, come on. <laughs> this is when I when I solved the lament configuration, I was like chains, mutilation, endless monstrosities beyond the limits of human imagination. And then and then when the Cenobites showed up, they were like, "Hey, your bathroom's just going to kind of indefinitely leak, and you'll never really know when it's going to get fixed or when maintenance is going to show up." I I was just like, I was screaming in terror. This is not what I signed up for. <laughs> No, of course not. Of course not. I mean, who wouldn't be screaming in terror? In terror, if you haven't worked it out, we are, <laughs> we we are, we are doing what, maybe one of the best horror vanguard segues we've done in a while. Ever, talking, ever. We we are talking about Hellraiser, uh, a classic uh, of horror writing that was adapted into um, uh, an incredible uh, horror movie. Clive Barker making his his long film long form feature film directorial debut with it for the people who are listening to this who have maybe not seen hellraiser or even it it's been a while it's been a while since you've watched it maybe it's time for a part of the show that i always really look forward to it is time for ash to tell us all what hellraiser is really all about Oh, this is this is kind of embarrassing on my part because this whole time I've been talking about the uh, classic movie Joe's Apartment, where the cockroaches <laughs> come to life and and help Joe solve a series of personal problems. Uh, so now now I have to shoo away these hundreds of cockroaches that have gathered to listen to me. So it's going to take me one second. <laughs> going to be an awkward episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be really. <laughs> It'll be awesome if we made it to the end of the episode. And I was like, thanks for thanks for listening, everybody. We talked about Joe's apartment, and then you were like, wait, this was Hellraiser. You got Hellraiser in my Joe's apartment? No. Let's turn up the juice and see what shakes loose. The film we're talking about today, uh, as John has mentioned, is Clive Barker's Hellraiser. Uh, Clive Barker is a phenomenal artist who who works with uh, painting, illustration. He's a playwright and a poet, just all around incredibly talented artist. Clive Barker's central focus, however, is is obscured by the Hellraiser franchise, uh, a franchise that he has largely checked out from. The Hellraiser franchise has gone on to become one of the most noteworthy, uh, goriest, and most disgusting horror franchises out there. But it isn't always that way, and it didn't always start that way. Hellraiser uh, gets its origin in Clive Barker's novella The Hellbound Heart, which is indeed the first title for this film. During production, it was planned to be titled The Hellbound Heart. Studio execs infamously hated that title because it sounded way too much like a romance movie and it would have confused uh, moviegoers. 
So Clive Barker offered a second title, a little bit miffed that they rejected the poetry and beauty of his original intentions, as Sadomasochist from Beyond the Grave. Naturally, uh, this, this made the studio bristle immediately because anything sexual uh, causes Hollywood to, to go into a death spasm. So Clive opened it up to the production crew to pitch him a new title. A 60-year-old uh, woman and a member of production came up to him and suggested what a woman will do for a good fuck. And this leads us in to the central contention of Hellraiser. This isn't a story about gore, about demons, about monsters, about horror. This is a story about sexual intimacy and love. The limits of the exploration of human imagination is, is quite literally what the Cenobites have come to Earth to conduct. Quoting another one of Clive Barker's works, he says, Everybody is a book of blood. Wherever we're opened, we're read. Leading us to the central, uh, you know, neurotological conclusions of human sexuality. When we're opened up to each other, when we're exposed, our stories can truly be read. And this red is both the red of our blood and the red of reading. The link between gore and sexuality and what horror wants to do with your body is expressly explored by Clive Barker. Unless you think that Clive isn't first and foremost a student of beauty and an artist concerned with love before anything else. Uh, a quote, Did I say that she was beautiful? I was wrong. Beauty is too tame a notion. It evokes only faces in magazines, a lovely eloquence, a charming symmetry. None of that describes this woman's face. So perhaps I should assume I cannot do it justice with words. Suffice it to say that it would break your heart to see her, and it would mend what was broken in the same moment. And you would be twice what you'd been before. Join us as we discuss the first appearance of a rom-com in all of Horror Vanguard, Hellraiser. Let's, let's kind of ready ourselves <laughs> it's, it's been it's been a it's been a long it's been a long time it's been a long time coming <laughs> yeah um, there's gonna be there's probably gonna be quite a few of those gags in 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 this episode so, just, so many puns get, so many i mean puns. let's like I, maybe we should start there right like the very opening line of the film tells us what this film is all about where frank is sitting in a in a marketplace and is asked by a by a kind of shadowy figure what's your pleasure mr cotton what's your pleasure and takes away the lament configuration um and that's i i completely agree that is in many ways exactly what this film is about it's about the exploration of pleasure at the very limit of experience and possibility so yeah, this is the very first romantic comedy that we have ever covered on Horror Vanguard. Um, <laughs> I'm really excited to see where this goes. Is, is, is this the stealth introduction of our spinoff show, Rom Communism? <laughs> what a way to start. <laughs> yeah, I seriously, I seriously can't think of any, any, any better way to, to, to start this. So when, so okay, here, here's something we don't, we don't talk about very often on the show. When was the first time you saw Hellraiser? I think the very first time that I saw it was probably about 15 years ago and it was a film that i didn't know anything about until there was a because there's one the channel five always used to show a late night horror movie on like a thursday or friday night something that was really cheap but would probably pull in a few people um and one day just by flicking through i think i caught the first what 10 minutes and just watch the rest of the thing. So I watched it when I was like young and foolish and unprepared, which is maybe the best way to encounter a film like this. Um, what about you? I was like seven. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah, that uh, I'm not checks out. This, Par actually. for the course, right? <laughs> I mean, like, like I, I, I had the classic like latchkey kid in a small town experience, where where like the 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 cool kids at the uh, blockbuster and Hollywood video rental stores were 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 very much like hey you want to see something fucked up take this movie home and I blame I actually I blame Sam Raimi for all of this because I loved Evil Dead is hilarious and so is Army of Darkness like those are funny funny horror movies and like I loved those as a kid so I would look for movies with similar titles. Because I was like, oh, okay, Army of Darkness, Evil Dead. Those are great, campy, like I didn't know these terms and these formulations at the time, but like I was like, these are great campy horror movies. I love the the camp of splatter. I need more of this. I'm, I'm browsing the video store. What do we got? Hellraiser, 
uh, that sounds just like Evil Dead. <laughs> yep. And uh, whoopsie doodles. <laughs> That was your, that was your first mistake. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a, mi- a minor whoopsie doodle on my part. It definitely didn't uh, fundamentally reshape my brain. Um, I mean, we all know that it did. We all know that it did. Let's be on it. <laughs> for for the better, though. I mean, like, um, I think we we were, we were saying this maybe before we started recording, but um, I'm a huge fan of Clive Barker's uh, novels and poetry. Like, I really fundamentally do believe, like, if there is a a uh, successor apparent to uh, the like 17th century French poet Charles Baudelaire, it is Clive Barker. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And weirdly, weirdly, um, like horror studies seems to have been really slow to pick up on this. There's been for about 20 years or so. There's been very little written on Barker at all. Mm-hmm. Um, that does seem to be. I think he's going through a kind of critical renaissance you know there's a much more developed critical interest in his work but i think it's probably because of the fact that he is not just a writer you know he's a filmmaker he's an artist he's a poet he does visual art he does theater so he is not easily classifiable in a way that lends itself to to kind of academic theorizing yeah yeah and i think i think another really important reason why so the framework of academia is deeply tied into like the normalizing forces of, of hegemonic power and a lot of a lot of like the because so Clive, so um for our audience members who don't know clive barker is a gay man you know he's 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 been openly gay for most of his life i think it was in his teen years when he came out and had his first uh home, like homosexual relationship and like his art is deeply 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 interwoven with that like like the two are inextricable like like if you want phenomenal explorations of like queer sexuality clive barker's writing is where it's at um from 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 a horror kink perspective of course um but i think like part of clive barker's sexuality that he depicts isn't what because academia wants homonormative sexuality right and um so homonormativity is a kind of a, a, a version and a mode of of homosexuality that seeks to just recreate and replicate heterosexuality, right? So it's it's the same uh, white picket fence, 2.5 kids, uh, good tax-paying citizens who don't ask questions, but it's it's two dads or two moms instead of a dad and a mom. Um, Clive Clive Barker, like his personal life aside, his his art does not fuck with that. <laughs> his art is, is is much more closer to to the radical definitions of queer. Right, the definitions of queer that challenge, just like Marx, that challenge the nuclear family, and and just like Marx in terms of challenging the nuclear family, not just like Marx as a radical queer. Although if we <laughs> if we find out that Marx was like a leather bear, I will be unsurprised. <laughs> <laughs> but I think like the, this is an important reason why I think Clive Barker's work doesn't slot into academia so well, is because this is this is kink, this is radical explorations of queer sexuality. This is not stuff yeah. that easily slots into academic experience. Academic experience wants philosophical sexuality. It doesn't want embodied sexuality. And the other thing that crops up in a lot of his work, in a lot of his art, in a lot of his theater, and in a lot of his horror writing, and is the idea of a non-material metaphysics. Right? It isn't... Mm-hmm. Yep. Like, the supernatural is is real uh in fact a lot of it is filtered through religious iconography explicitly which combined with the um with the very honest and very uh intense and actually very erotic explorations of desire and sexuality that is uh kinky and transgressive is like it's a pretty heady combination those two things that uh, are kind of teased out throughout his work Deeply. <laughs> and I know, I know I know this is something that I wanted to get your opinion on and kind of your analysis. So what do you make of, uh, you know, like like in, in Hellraiser specifically, uh, Clive Barker's use of like religious symbolism and iconography, you know, like the like um, Cenobite itself, like like before Cenobite became associated with Hellraiser's specific brand of monster, it was just another term for like a monk, a, a member of a religious order. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's loads of religious um, icons and statues and crucifixes in this film, and and I think it's really it's really easy to just uh, 
kind of discount all of that and to go or to do another kind of really reductive reading which is like ah well we'll turn the cenobites into religious figures that have dethroned the icons of specifically a catholic kind of christianity and i think that's very lazy i think that's not a really good reading of it at all there are two things which are interesting so sex and religion are in many ways limit experiences so there's a common way of writing about religion where you try and talk about it but with removing the concept of transcendence from it like you know some pretty good writers have talked about this uh alain badur um zizek even in 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 places has written about kind of <laughs> god godless religion and and then there's a bad way of writing about religion because zizek and other kind of like communist writers on religion see it see it as a kind of revolutionary force with the capacity to kind of systematically reshape the world um gramsci wrote about it then there's a bad way of writing about religion where which takes kind of two broad flavors which is where you go uh, it's all imaginary fedora reddit atheist level discourse <laughs> oh god uh, or you do i'm going to return to my nemesis which is alan uh, alan de baton, de baton. Uh, alan de baton has written about religion and he says that basically the function of religion is to kind of make us just nicer people religion is useful it makes us nice it it means that we kind of care about people uh, and maybe we'll be a good employee at work as well because it's our religious duty as well as our kind of job and i'm like that's a hideous epistemological violence to do to any concept of religion like religion uh, any like most religions posit themselves as kind of genuinely world altering right if if a, a uh, religious tradition strikes you as true, it is something that can systematically reshape almost everything that you believe and think about the world. It takes you out of yourself, right? Beyond yourself or deeper into yourself to find out new things about yourself. It doesn't just, it isn't kind of moralism. And the same is very true of um, sexual desire. A desire is an incredibly powerful force, right? It is not just... It isn't just kind of dangerous. It's 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 extravagant. It's excessive. It takes you out of yourself to connect with someone or some uh, someone else or multiple others, um, and through it you discover new things about yourself as well. So I think this religious religious ecstasy and sexual ecstasy have an awful lot in common, um, especially historically, especially in Christian theology. This uh, this idea of ecstatics. Um, is a pretty well-known one. So there's some really interesting stuff happening here. Uh, and, you know, you can't just go, well, we're going to brush past the religious stuff. If anything, it's a way of showing just how seriously we should take the transgressive pursuit of pleasure that Barker puts forth. You are absolutely stunningly correct with that analysis. And we see this everywhere in in clive barker's work right look at the costuming on the cenobites they're all rubber nuns right like mm -hmm. this is a class of they're they're all wearing like one of the most classic kink costumes out there they're they're like they're like like oiled up leather or like rubber latex fetish like nuns it's fantastic and then like to to read a quick quote from the hellbound heart one of my favorite um it's part of one of my favorite passages but like um, Clive Barker writes, everything tires with time and starts to seek some opposition to save it from itself. And, and like, there's that same sense of religious desire that's in that, right? It's a hunger for something so much more, so much deeper and so much more interconnected. And I think that, like, Clive Barker's use of religion is just phenomenally deep. It's deep, man. There is a kind of philosophical and aesthetic tradition then that you can put Barker into, which ties back to Georges Bataille. And Bataille was very interested in this concept of what he called the limit experience. Um, it's something that uh, Foucault picks up on as well in Foucault's own work. And famously, both of them had an interest in uh, sexual practices that were pretty outside the hetero and homonormative um this quote there's this great quote from uh foucault where foucault describes the limit experience as the point of life which lies as close as possible to the impossibility of living which lies at the limit or at the extreme the search for like you you can you can be a hedonist but frank who gets the um lament configuration is not just a hedonist right it's what happens if you go through that and you go out the other side, right? What happens if you have become 
so bored with the with the uh, standard pleasures of the flesh that you try and push through that to see what lies on the other side. And that's what Bataille, that's what Foucault would call limit experiences. And that's where you find the almost religious ecstasies of the Cenobites. I think that I think that's a really great reading of of how the Cenobites kind of operate. Right? Because like they're I think like the Hellraiser franchise more broadly has really ruined the Cenobites for me. You know, mm-hmm. like by the time we get to Hellraiser nine, the Cenobites are just like spoopy demons who are doing the devil's work and, and being evil baddies who are bad. But like mm-hmm. in, in Hellbound Heart specifically and to a lesser extent in Hellraiser, but we'll get to this when we talk about like the constructions of villainy in cinema, like the Cenobites aren't bad. They they operate and exist as naturally occurring beings that are in a completely different sphere of existence to humanity, mm. you know, and it's their incursion into our world that, that becomes something unbearably difficult, right? Mm. The depictions of the Cenobites in Hellraiser 1 and Hellbound Heart are much closer to, like, biblical depictions of angels than, than they are yeah. to, like, spooky demon monsters. There's there's something unbearable from outside this world that the, the, the human, you know... Uh, uh, concoction of experience cannot contain the fullness of yeah and that's the thing right they they, they're not just promising you pain right that's not it's not it isn't that they are you know just leather leathered up people who didn't get into elite hunting to torture people to death in Eastern Europe. (laughs) That isn't what this is about, but it's about the possibility of finding through the body a kind of transcendence. Through through matter, can you get to something which is immaterial? I I think that that is so important because a lot of the experience in Hellraiser, it's like this combination of, it's a lot of like religious kink stuff. Because it's this combination of kind of classic kink iconography, like I was talking about with the rubber nuns and like these chains and restraints. But it's also like religious flagitation, you know? Like it's, it's, the, it's the wounding of the body to achieve some kind of spiritual height. Yes, absolutely. And it's absolutely. The, this, this distinction between pain and pleasure in the context of the Cenobites is, is a specifically sadomasochism distinction between pain and pleasure and that's mm-hmm. that's the realization that like the the two are interwoven with each other right the, the two you you can't cleanly delineate one from the other yes and that's and that is you know part of the reason that i think people find it kind of threatening but also why people are drawn to the lament configuration right you can't disentangle these things. To get into one of the things that I wanted to talk about, like uh, heteronormativity, homonormativity, and kink, right? Like, like the, the the queer community, especially on the more radical side, has always been fundamentally tied into whatever the prevalent trends of that time's kink have been, right? Like, kink isn't something extraneous to to like LGBT. Uh, uh, concerns and audiences it's interwoven through it right it's often in kink communities that the most radical and front-facing members of the queer community formulate and gather right you can't you can't like cleanly start to separate these things and i think we we kind of see parts of the problem of frank's approach to hedonism and and sadomasochism and and kind of like extreme kink uh, in how he frames it, right? Like, um, we don't get this in the movie, but in the Hellbound Heart, um, when Frank first summons the Cenobites, he, he thinks that what's going to come through the portal is a bunch of, like, ultra-hot babes. And, oh, and, right. and, he, and he's, and he's going to have, like, <laughs> super awesome super sex. But then Cenobites show up. You know, it's, it's, he is trying to force and constrict kink into a patriarchal heteronormative framework. Right. He, he wants, you know, he, he wants kink experiences, but he doesn't actually want to confront the queer reality of kink experiences, which is going to have him constantly running into a wall. And that wall is replicating patriarchal violence. Right. And we, we see that throughout the entire movie, you know, and, and, and on, on every level of Frank's existence from the fact that, like, he's having an affair with his with his brother's partner 
right, which is deeply unethical and, and, and violent in its own emotional and moral way, to, to literally consuming the bodies of people and, and using another woman's or using a woman's sexual labor as, as a like instrument of his violence. I think we should talk about the relationships in this film then. Let's do it. Um, what do you what do you think about our our well uh, what is in essence a central thropple? <laughs> so I think uh, we, we've got this the, okay so this film this film has a rhizomatic uh, uh, love triangle right it's a love rhizome because all <laughs> all of these characters have inter interconnected and conflicting um, emotional worlds right like. Larry and Julia are married. Uh, Frank is sleeping with Julia. Frank is Larry's brother. Christy, uh, or sorry, Kirsty. I always call her Christy. I, my God, Kirsty, Christy. Kirsty um, is is part of this family unit, right? Like she's getting drawn into this. Her boyfriend's drawn into this. But there was some clearly something has gone on though, because that is not a happy or stable or family unit at all uh, no like, not in the slightest <laughs> frank frank is is ruining this 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 fucking like frank is a homewrecker you know like he, he's having an affair with um julia and like there's 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 a, there's another um relationship layer to this as well that's going on and that's the cenobites right um the, the cenobites are a giant kink polycule like the, and then, like once, 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 um, uh, let me um, let me fix my glasses here, John. But once we get into the Hellraiser comics, we actually see that like a lot of the Cenobites are dating each other. Oh right, <laughs> you have much more knowledge of like the Hellraiser lore than I do. So. I I am such a fan <laughs> of all the weird Hellraiser meta texts. But like P- Pin- Pinhead has a girlfriend. Like oh right, li- okay. literally, literally, he's in a relationship and like. A lot of the other Cenobites have like partners and primary partners and secondary partners and like, like, but they still they still have like their kink activity uh, that's extraneous to their primary relationships or sometimes fluidly interacting with it, right? So so we have like this the text of Hellraiser is kind of this fluidly moving relationship that's eroding any kind of stable sense of monogamy, while at the same time kind of giving us depictions in in the weirdest ways possible of like. Frank's unethical non-monogamy and then like you have like the incredibly strange but also incredibly ethical mono- non-monogamy of the Cenobites <laughs> which I think yeah. I think that ties into the fact that like a lot of these spaces should be and are inherently radical right, right? They, they, they tie back into to so many radical things that we that we lose focus on and and that's what makes this threatening yes I also think this is a great this is a great film about two people discovering that their marriage is is just not working. <laughs> Sorry, um, are you saying this is a marriage story but 20 years beforehand? <laughs> this is the marriage story that should have been. Skip skip, um, skip uh the new marriage story with a Star Wars guy and Black Widow. Watch Hellraiser. <laughs> watch Hellraiser and and tell me that that that, that isn't what's going on here. Um because it's clear from like the off that this is a de- deeply sort of conflicted relationship. It's, you know, it's just not working between them. They don't seem to be that into each other either. Um, there is no real kind of spark because that's the whole thing about Frank, right? Is that he, he just, even the kind of dream image of him is like a liberatory sexual experience. Um, I really like the proposed title that, that that person on the production crew came up with. Um, oh, yeah. It seems it seems pretty accurate as to that's basically what this film is about. Um, yeah, it's kind of literally a, a huge chunk of the plot of this movie. <laughs> um, although, as I said to you before we started recording, I think it's painfully on the nose for this film to present all British people as being emotionally repressed wannabe kinksters who will murder somebody if the guy that asked them to do it is hot enough <laughs> um just seems a little bit i don't know it just seems a bit on the nose if you ask me i mean that's just that's just clive barker writing from from the experience of, of living in england i guess 
Yeah, hundred percent. That's basically if you wanna if you want insight into the 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 character, the 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 psychosexual character of of the English, I think this is a great way of understanding it. <laughs> yeah, I really I, I I do think that this movie like. Oh, Cloud Barker is just so good. Like this movie, you 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 get that stuff right. Where like this is the psychosexual repression of England, and then like you, you also have like a, a lot of this American experience and American energy and like the the weird psychosexual American stuff with like 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 a lot of American psychosexual like stuff has to do with the family. It has to do with the stability and the erosion of just the very concept of a nuclear family. And we, yes. we, we see this all the way from, like, Psycho all the way through today. There is always, like, incest taboo woven through a lot of American horror. Yeah. And so you've got, like, hey, if you want, if you want British psychosexual subtext, you got it. If you want American, here you go. <laughs> okay, so there's, there's an incredible scene in the film that... Um, Just one? <laughs> that directly underscores the point that you're making, uh, which is that um, when Julia is Julia, when they've moved in, when the, Julia and Larry are moving in, and she is upstairs having what looks like a really hot dream, hot time with Frank in uh, in the bedroom, and Larry is downstairs like impotently trying to jam the bed through this narrow doorway and i'm like that's a pretty it's pretty clear visual metaphor going on here <laughs> he's trying literally trying to get the mattress in through the door to create the family home whilst upstairs this this is this kind of hotbed of repression and desire and lust happening and it ends up with larry bleeding on the floor and being kind of unable to cope unable to succeed as it were i just think that that film that that moment in the film where it's just like intercutting between the two just makes that point that you were talking about the difference between this kind of a uh, very particular kind of British repression and this very uh, aggressively American heteronormativity kind of jamming them together to make it explicit to us, the audience, that, like, that's what this is about. And, like, like, like it's impossible to read this movie without, like, so many different varieties of kink, too, because everybody likes to focus on the BDSM because, like, the, the, the Cenobites wear, like, leather fetish or latex fetish outfits, and then they have, like, chains and restraints, and they're into, like, blood play and, and cutting and knife play. But, like, yeah, no, nobody focuses on the incest role play. Nobody focuses on the fact that, like, the, the Frank-Julia-Larry triad is just, like, this w weird incestual cuckolding fetish. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Because there's a there's a moment there's a moment when um, Julia and Larry are in bed and Frank is watching them, mm -hmm. um, and playing with his knife. Again, I, the the symbology here is not even is 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 text. It's not subtext. <laughs> right. That's Giles. Giles from Buffy the Vampire Slayer coming back again. Uh, I believe the subtext here is quickly becoming text. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and there's, you know, the moment where she realizes that he's there and she ends up saying, no, I can't bear it. I can't possibly, I can't do this. Um, yeah, so there is no, there is no subtext here. The, the, the text is pretty obvious if you are willing to um, open your mind and body to that particular way of responding. Right. And like at the end of the film, Frank is literally inside of Larry. Like, yeah, absolutely. Li literally, he's wearing his skin. He is as deep inside of another man as you can feasibly go. <laughs> well, yeah. At, at least, at least until a Cenobite shows me a different way that that's so somehow more extreme than that. And that means we should probably talk about um, it's Kirsty, right? Yes. <laughs> the name Kirstie. I always get wrong. I'm losing my horror cred. Um, and Kirsty has left the family home right at the beginning because there has been some sort of unspoken uh, traumatic incident. Um, her and Julia do not get on well. It's very interesting that she is... There's that horribly creepy moment where Frank, now inside of Larry, says, come to daddy. Mm -hmm. And it's like there's this this it's 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 sexual it's there's a kind of hint there's not a hint there's a very explicit threat that's bound up within it as well and i think that point you were making about the incest taboo particularly is something that is really prevalent in this film yeah yeah that is definitely one of this film's stronger subtexts 
So what do you think about the way that this film talks about family? I, I, I think it's really, 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 really good and really radical, right? Like the, this is kind of pointing to all of like uh, the, the, the limitations of the way that like, and this is, this is kind of like another level of fetishization that is going on here, right? Because like, as a culture more broadly, we have like deeply and perversely fetishized this idea of a nuclear family, right? Of a yeah. mom, a dad, 2.5 children, and they exist as an entirely separate unit from larger society. And, and they're mm -hmm. somehow entirely self-sustained in this little like uh, terrarium. And, and th this movie is kind of like, no, <laughs> that has never been true in any context ever. And it will continue to not be true. And I think like Hellraiser is a deeply challenging text from an academic perspective because it doesn't give you anything easily and it refuses any kind of simplistic discourse. And this includes how it talks about the idea of the nuclear family. Yeah, the, the, it's, uh, the nuclear family is possessive, sexually aggressive, violent, bound up, of course, within ownership and discourses of property. Um you know, it's all about moving into the family home. Uh, and what's what's literally the first thing Kirsty says when she comes in? This is a big house. <laughs> um, so, yeah, absolutely. I think this is something that is very, very clear in this film, right? The, and, and the fact that incest is always there, always bubbling away underneath the surface. Right, and I think, I think it speaks to, like, all of the deeper tensions that, that are going on here, right? Like... A lot of a lot of familial tension that exists in the real world is kind of mediated through the, the, this corrupting force of the nuclear family, right? Like your your ability to actually relate to your family is is hindered by this, you know. Like like the financial dependence you have on them, the abusive structures of power that kind of necessarily structure this system. They they forbid or they make at least extremely difficult having like genuinely positive emotional attachments you know you have to be like like there's a lot of privilege that goes into having a really healthy family you know like 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 the more economic strife you're under the more the more racial strife you're under all of that stuff where's the ability of people to actually bond with each other and and this this is played out in hellraiser in an incredibly literal way <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more, actually. I couldn't agree more. I think this is... I would be really interested to uh, read Sophie Lewis on this, uh, author of Full Surrogacy Now, um, who has written on quite a lot of other horror films, wrote a great essay on uh, Midsommar, um, and the, in the ways in which the family as a site of violence in and of itself outside of the influence of the Cenobites is well worth talking about. Yeah, I think that's the, the thing to point out here is that like <clears throat> the real horror of the violence that's going on is what Frank is doing to Larry and what Frank is doing to Julia and what Frank is doing to Kirsty. Like, like, like the real horror of this movie is Frank's violence. The advantage of the Cenobites is that they're honest about what it is that they want and they don't try and disguise the fact that pursuing their own pleasures necessarily involves committing uh violence and if you open the box if you call them if they come they have such things to show you but those things are going to force you to reevaluate what you think pleasure actually is and and this this is this is really really important to discuss when we're discussing the film of hellraiser is that in hellraiser one and hellbound heart more specifically this, like, like in Help on Heart, the Cenobites are not duplicitous, <clears throat> right? When, when, when they show up and they're like, okay, Kirsty, time to go to hell for your eternal torment kink session. She's like, how about um, I give you the guy that escaped? And they're like, oh, what? A guy escaped, <laughs> you know? <clears throat> and then and then she delivers Frank. And then like the Help on Heart ends with um, the engineer who's the lead, the lead Cenobite in the novel handing Kirsty the puzzle box and being like, keep this, you know, some degenerate will come for it one day and like they disappear. And then the movie after, after delivering Frank, the Cenobites are like, Oh, okay, well we're going to take you to hell too. And then she has to defeat them using the magic of the puzzle box. Yeah. Which is, eh, I'm not wild about. <clears throat> no, no. It, it reduces them to simple, to just boogeymen, to just movie monsters. 
and and it, it kind of lowers the discourse here but like you know in in pinhead's own words there are explorers in the further reaches of experience demons to some angels to others right they're not they're not bad guys looking to make people suffer they're people who are just really into suffering <laughs> I suppose that's the thing, right? The ethics of it don't really doesn't really occur to them. We're not having like an ethical; they're not in any ethical quandary about what they do. And they're I, I think, and of... I think that's because they don't need to be. In 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 the Hellbound Heart, like the Cenobites are not doing anything unethical, right? Like it's only when we get to like by the time we've reached Hellbound Three, Pinhead is literally a, a Satan demon, and when we get to the comics, they're literally in war with like a good god. You know, and like, oh, like then, then it becomes deeply Christian and deeply moralizing as we go. But in Hellbound Heart, in this first one, they're they're just extra dimensional beings. You know, they're they're just from this other plane, and they're into some very specific stuff. Yeah, they they've got their they've got their kinks that they're into, um, and a lot of people can't 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 deal with that. Yeah, and it's like. Frank is the one doing violence here. Frank is the one abusing everyone around him. He he is the one benefiting from kind of these horrible systems of societal oppression, and and the fact that everyone considers the Cenobites to be the true monsters of it, and just because they're visibly interesting is how I'll phrase that. You know, they're they're <laughs> they're doing things that like seem intense, and like yeah, when we get when we get to like uh, the the chattering Cenobite and Butterball and like. The, the ones that are like severely mutilated and stuff like that okay that's cartoons that's that that's like that's a horror movie effect that is non-real that can't be real you know but like a lot of a lot of pinhead is is something that you can actually do you know you obviously you can't put nails in your skull and to that extent but like a lot of like the the blood play the depictions the kind of like treatments of the flesh the Cenobites and Hellraiser are challenging because they're they're eerily close to some of the more extreme and more visibly intense manifestations of kink. Yeah, isn't that why Pinhead has remained like so consistently popular? It's because it isn't because they're just like he's just a cartoon. It's because there's something kind of compelling, attractive even about this figure. Oh yeah, yeah, and especially like um, uh, the female Cenobite, <laughs> who is uh, like all the Cenobites are unnamed in in this one. Um, but like e- even like like she she has like the, this like like a lure, and there was I think this was a year or two ago, but um, these these artists did like a, a pinhead and lady pinhead photo shoot. That 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 got really popular uh, because it like it was depicting these things in their natural kink setting, and if we're talking about the comics, like. Kirsty takes the mantle of Pinhead later on in, in the extended Hellraiser universe, right? So there's even like aspects of gender fluidity in these power dynamics that that don't get discussed nearly as often as like big spoopy chain guy gets discussed. That's 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 yeah. I I I'm fascinated now. You've got me really into um, you've got me really into the the. Uh, Hellraiser extended universe, <laughs> the, the expanded cinematic universe, which is infinitely preferable to the Marvel one, uh, uh, deeply. Uh, and and yeah, like um, I don't know if 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 you're out there listening and now you're like, ooh, I really want to get into this Hellraiser stuff. I, I take it with a huge grain of salt. Like I'm I am a big silly horror nerd and I like goofy garbage. <laughs> and and by the time you're at Hellraiser thirty five, the quest for more Hellraiser. <laughs> it's it's just where there's where they're scraping the archive for like b-roll of, of doug right. bradley that they, <laughs> yeah. can, that they can put into the edit <laughs> right it's, it's 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 just like an interview with doug bradley that was shot in like the mid 90s and they photoshopped some needles onto him or something <laughs> Yeah, I think the ending of this is a little disappointing because very yeah they they ran out of money. I think narratively, making the Cenobites into monsters that you have to zap back to the hell dimension with the magic box is a little bit kind of sticky. 
and kind of subverts a lot of what was what's really cool and interesting about them yeah i don't i don't um, know if this was like because that feels like a studio thing that feels like okay yeah, like we big, need our... there was some big studio interference on the film i know that much yeah and, and that ending just feels like because the ending in the book is just like this sublime meditation on on so many different heady topics and the ending in the movie is like big action set piece magic lasers monster demon flying dragon skeleton (laughs) (laughs) oh the dragon skeleton the Um, eremite yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. but um but as an exploration of the violence of the of the nuclear family the incestuous desires the uh repression of honest articulations of uh kink and the uh yeah all of that really good incredible stuff um and like you say everyone gets hung up on the cenobites when it's frank who is the real villain the real monster of the piece and i think that's an important lesson right that's an important lesson which to be othered is not the same thing as being the kind of monster and and oftentimes i i think like it goes it goes further than that that the things that society calls monsters i.e the cenobites are are in fact perfectly fine you know like like it's a little morally dubious that like you can accidentally solve the lament configuration and summon them and so th- still still within their actions there's this like a, a greater moral awareness than frank ever presents and and one of the cenobites is just a giant mouth that keeps chittering over and again and and <laughs> the, the the chittering mouth guy sure he's not good with personal boundaries and he'll get a little no, too close he, to your he, face. He, yeah. But he's infinitely more ethical than normal human man Frank Cotton. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And like 100%. Like I couldn't agree more. It, it, the the movie just uh, the book the book I'm I'm usually not one of those like oh you have to read the book the book is so much better but in this case you have to read the book the book is so much better. <laughs> but like um we're we're seeing so much stuff going on in this film that I think is really important, right? Like like, like, as I was saying, like, it's so telling that we talk about Pinhead and, and the other Cenobites as the monsters, but we don't talk about Frank Cotton that way. Like, that is the most telling thing here. And he is a terrifying monster. He is... He is the worst he is monster. just, like, irredeemable. There's that moment where he's wearing Larry, and so Lar- Larry says, oh, that whole thing with Frank is over now. He was a mad dog. It would have been better if he'd never been born. And it's the one moment in the entire film where Frank is being honest. Yep. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's it's because you get to see, actually, that what he's interested in is is entirely his, his self because there's a mistake, right? And he ends up... He's, he's going to try and kill Kirsty um, and ends up stabbing Julia and doesn't care doesn't care the person that he has um promised that they're going to run away they're going to be together it's going to be just the two of them that's what you want isn't it and as soon as she's dead he's like "Mm, sorry yeah it's 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 an entirely like monstrous self-interested appetite that's why that you know it's it's violence that's done to others because it serves your own ends which is like genuinely horrific it's genuinely like uh, pretty disgusting um, the way that he treats other people but the fact is that that's so the film just goes well not exactly unique is he he's not exactly a unique kind of monster and that that's that's I think part of the difficulty of the analysis here that I think academia would have trouble with right is because you're gonna want to talk about the monstrosity of the literal monsters and not the monstrosity of the average white guy and and that's uh, yeah there's a lot of white guys in academia that's all i'm gonna say right and like that that's that's so core and so central to this and i think like um so we're coming up towards the end of the episode um and i think one thing that i would want to to go out discussing and that um when we do later hellraiser movies we'll get into more but like we, we we see this with um the doctor in hellraiser 2 and we see this with frank cotton but like a lot of discourse around BDSM is really, really, really bad, right? And, and because a lot of people think BDSM and then they think Cenobites, right? They think they think unethical, violent space monsters, and not 
you know, like, like these ethical explorations of the limits of pleasure, you know, and, and, and these kind of experiences and like, and like a lot of people hyper-focus BDSM into sexuality specifically when like BDSM and kink more broadly, just like the Cenobites extend well beyond the limits of, of sexuality. It's about, it's about exploring experience and feeling. And so a lot of times that intersects with sexuality, but not always. And I think like, when we try to compartmentalize BDSM into the real systemic violent forces around us, right? Like a lot, a lot of people say like, oh, like BDSM is inherently terrible and misogynistic because it's doing violence to women. And that's just a bad analysis of power, right? Like that's, that's Frank Cotton's violence is violence to women. You know, Frank, Frank Cotton is a representative uh, and a beneficiary of the patriarchy. He's a willing supporter of that system. He's, he spends the entire movie using a woman's sexual labor to, to uh, kill people and to bring about suffering. And if that's not like a potent metaphor for what patriarchy does, I don't know what is. And so if we're going to be having conversations about BDSM, we need to fundamentally reconsider our approach to kink. Or I shouldn't say reconsider because that implies no one's done this work and there is been work done <laughs> like like but maybe maybe listen to people who know about it yes would be a good start yes <laughs> um but that's that i think is a really important point to finish on the focus on experience you know there is the people when offered the possibility of something beyond the limits of what they normally encounter can respond in one of two ways and there is there is the limit experience always has risk it always has risk. And that's not just true of, uh, you know, that's something Thomas Lugosi writes about, that's something Bataille writes about, that's something Foucault writes about. There's always dangers in going beyond the limit of what we think we are capable of living through. But there will always be people who are drawn to it. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to our uh, episode on Hellraiser. This has been a lot of fun. The, look first, the first episode of Rom-Communism. Right? <laughs> look, look forward to the next episode of Rom-Communism, Hellraisers 2 through 9. <laughs> uh, Hellraiser, the, the film that taught me that you should not marry someone you're not really that into. <laughs> I, I, I am part of the subset of individuals that views Hellraiser less as a horror movie and more as an instructional DVD. So, so I really, I really vibe with what you just said. Ash, you're right. We're going to have to return to um, the Hellraiser world law. Have to do some <laughs> we, just, we just have to get working on solving one of the other. Oh, you know, we, you know what we should solve next? We should solve that lament configuration. That's a satellite in outer space. <laughs> See, I don't know enough to know if that's a real thing they did with this franchise or if you're just fucking with me at this point. <laughs> You know what? I'm just going to leave that as a pleasant surprise and you and our dear listeners are going to find out all too soon the limits of podcasting experience. Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. <laughs>